Great singing this morning. Well, if you would, let's go ahead and take our copy of the confession this morning and go ahead and turn to chapter 18, paragraph 4. And we'll be dealing this morning with the subject of the revival of assurance. The revival of assurance. Uh, now, we all have in our mind's eye, uh, when we hear the word revival, all of us, that conjures up uh, many different thoughts as to what revival is, what revival looks like. But in the confession reading this morning and in the paragraph, uh, we are talking about the revival of our assurance, the revival of something that has at least temporarily uh, been uh, limited. Uh, it has become in a way that we are struggling with it. And the paragraph is really going to show us that there is this possibility that we will go through periods of time when our assurance certainly needs to be revived. Now, we do know that there are some Christians who are uh, seemingly more steadfast. Uh, they are seemingly uh, have little ebb and flow in their faith. They have let little ebb and flow in their assurance. We've talked about that over the last, last few Sundays. Some just have this seeming assurance that is, uh, it seems to last, it seems to uh, not be diminished in any way, shape, or form, and they just seem to have a confidence and a peace uh, that seems to go beyond even maybe our own understanding. However, the confession writers understood that this was not always the case, and this final paragraph uh, in chapter 18 uh, deals with the reality that believers can have their sense of assurance shaken, diminished, or interrupted. Uh, not removed, per se, but they could have it shaken. Uh, they could have their assurance interrupted, if you will. Uh, there may come a time when uh, this assurance becomes, uh, seems to be lacking. Uh, and yet, the confession ends that paragraph by mentioning that our assurance can be revived in due time. We'll see that one of those final expressions there. So there are four causes that are mentioned how our assurance of our salvation can vary and can be brought to a place of revival. So let's look first of all and read the paragraph, paragraph four, and then we'll get into this this morning. Uh, true believers may have the assurance of their salvation diverse ways shaken, diminished, and intermitted, as by negligence in preserving of it, by falling into some special sin which woundeth the conscience and grieveth the spirit, by some sudden or vehement temptation, by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance, and suffering even such as fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light. Yet are they never destitute of the seed of God and life of faith, that love of Christ and the brethren, that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty, out of which, by the operation of the Spirit, this assurance may in due time be revived, and by the which, in the meantime, they are preserved from utter despair. So really, we're given four causes, uh, with these four causes for how our assurance can be uh, interrupted or can be intermitted, as they say. And so we see that the very first cause that is mentioned is mentioned negligence. And you'll see that it says negligence in preserving of it. Uh, negligence is one of those, uh, one of those causes. 
Uh, we, we neglect um, our own assurance. Uh, we neglect the foundation of what we understand. Now, we've learned that the primary, our assurance, the very strength, the very confidence of our assurance lies in the foundation, which foundationally is the blood and the righteousness of Christ, which is revealed in the gospel. That truth is unchangeable. So when we talk about a revival of assurance, we're not talking about that God's unchangeable foundations need to be revived, but that it is we who need to be revived. And that first cause that they make mention of, that confession writers make mention of, is our own negligence in preserving our own assurance. So we are to take steps to preserve what our assurance is. So we are to constantly be reminding ourselves and through biblical truth and meditate upon the truth of God's unchangeable foundation of the blood and righteousness of Christ. That that foundation's not going to change. Uh, now, we do see in Revelation 2-4, uh, the Bible makes mention of Christians or believers leaving their first love. That is an act of, of the will. It's an act of, of leaving or neglecting our first love, which is Christ himself. Hebrews 2, chapter, number, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, uh, speaks of drifting away. Uh, to negligence allows you to drift and to leave your first love. However, we know if we're in Christ, uh, this is only for a period of time. Now, if we allow ourselves to drift, if we allow ourselves to uh, leave our first love, uh, you are going to suffer in your assurance. You are going to have struggles. You are going to begin to question uh, whether you are truly in the faith. Now, we also learned uh, two Sundays ago about these foundation stones of assurance. Not only is it based on the blood and righteousness of Christ, but remember, we also learned about the inward evidence of the graces of the Spirit. In other words, if we neglect the grace that, that the Spirit uh, demonstrates to us, our assurance grows weaker, and it, begoes, it goes weaker and weaker as time goes on. Uh, part of the graces of the Spirit really come out in how we act. Uh, if we have, for example, a quick fuse, we are quick to anger. We are, we are quick to strike out. Uh, we allow ourselves to, uh, to fall into a pattern of, of gossip or fall into a pattern of, of lusting after things that we shouldn't uh, lust after. Or if we just engage in what we would call non-Christ-like or non-godly behavior, folks, your assurance is going to take a hit as well. If we live as if we're not children of God, the, the natural result of that is you are going to struggle with your assurance because you're neglecting the very things which Christ has said through his word that we should uh, take uh, measures to preserve. So if, if we want to have this assurance that doesn't need revived or this assurance that isn't constantly uh, being battered, uh, we have to pay attention to these things. We have to pay attention to our own, uh, our own, uh, how we respond in everyday situations. Uh, how we are, are we meditating upon these foundational stones? Are we thinking about uh, who we are in Christ? So we've got to nurture those things. Uh, just like we nurture our children, we teach our children uh, how, to, how to act properly. Uh, even Paul, when he would make mention of controlling his body, he was talking about even controlling the very emotions and the very things which uh, drive him 
uh, to move away from the things of God. And that's really what the confession writers had in mind here, that this negligence is negligence in preserving. Uh, the second uh, cause is by falling into some special sin which woundeth the conscience and grieveth the spirit. So the second one is this falling into some special sin. Now this is not indicating that uh, there is uh, this, this sin that is, is a standalone, but it might be a particular sin uh, that's uh, common to you. It might be a sin that uh, you uh, particularly struggle with. Um, if we were honest with each other today, and obviously this is not a confessional where you're confessing to me, I'm confessing to you, but we all have a special sin in our life that tends to be, uh, can be a problem with us. Uh, now, of course, we're, we're praying and hoping and diligently trying to overcome that, but it's, you, you could fall into what the confession writers mentioned, a special sin. And notice what they said, a special sin which wounds the conscience and grieves the spirit. Okay, so think about this. I mean, think about how quickly, for example, uh, that the Apostle Peter uh, fell into, uh, and I'm using that term lightly, uh, fell into denying Christ. I mean, he goes from, I'm ready to die for you, to denying Christ in a matter of hours. That's, that would be a classification of a special sin. That, that is something that it's, it happened to him so quickly that it led him to deny Christ three times. Even though Jesus himself told him, you are going to deny me three times before the sun comes up. And Peter did exactly that. So when Peter denied Christ, if you read those accounts, uh, look at how his assurance of who he was even in God, it began to falter. It began to weaken. Now, we know that the Spirit itself produces in us a loyalty that we are to be to Christ. But what happened to Peter? That loyalty, that desire to be with Christ, was temporarily overtaken by a sin of denial, a sin of uh, basically almost becoming cowardly about the circumstance. So this came on him in a, in a way that his conscience was severely wounded. That's why when we see uh, that he goes out and weeps, because he knows what has happened is he was, he was taken over by a sudden sin and a special sin. Uh, I think another example, and, and Psalm 51, which is a very common psalm. Uh, psalm 51, of course, records the prayer of confession by David. Uh, David, Psalm 51 is all about his assurance being shaken. Uh, it's, a, it's a psalm of repentance, no doubt, but it's also a, a psalm of a, an assurance that has really been shaken. Uh, for example, in Psalm 51, 8, uh, David says, Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Verse 12, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. And then verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness. O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. So this prayer of this psalm of confession includes also a plea for recovery, to recover his joy. Assurance is accompanied with joy. 
Our joy comes from our assurance. The reason I'm joyful in Christ and joyful in God is that assurance. And David was pleading with God, please bring back the joy of my assurance. Now, also, the confession makes mention of also not only falling into some special sin, but it specifically says, which wounds the conscience and grieves the spirit. Uh, When a believer sins in such a way as to grieve the spirit, what he is really wounded, it's not that this, the Holy Spirit is hurt in the sense of what we think, that the, the Spirit begins to cry, the Spirit begins to, uh, to, to question uh, his own role in the Trinity. But what's wounded is the Spirit that the believer has and his own spirit of adoption. He begins to question his own adoption into the family of God. The Spirit is there giving testimony and giving us assurance that we do belong to God. But when we sin against the Spirit, we are sinning against the very adoption that we have been given in, through, in and through God himself. If you look at Romans 8.15, that's what the Apostle Paul was making mention of here, uh, even in this great chapter that uh, so, so many uh, things. But uh, Paul says in, in Romans 8.15, he says, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now, we are the children of God. That is assurance. And when we sin against the Spirit, when we grieve the Spirit, as in Ephesians 4.30, we are grieving and wounding the Spirit of our own adoption. Now, that is certainly inevitable because we know that uh, if we wound the Spirit, then our assurance is also going to be hindered and we're going to uh, experience uh, the consequences of that. But then he also, then the confession writers also mention a sudden temptation. Uh, now this one is, is quite interesting. Uh, some sudden temptation is the third cause of assurance being diminished. At times, now this is where we have to be very careful in how we approach this. Uh, temptation can sometimes be so intense, uh, can be so... Uh, vivid that even though you don't yield to that temptation it actually does affect your assurance now what i mean by that is is often we we sometimes <laughs> i think sometimes we make this we make this very clear line of 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 marking that we say temptation is never a sin and that only yielding to it is But I want you to think about this for a moment. There are times that we put ourselves in a place that affects the temptation. So I don't know if it's accurate for us to always say, temptation's not a sin. For example, if I'm putting myself in a situation where there is a high likelihood that I may be tempted by what I am kind of dabbling in, and the temptation comes, did I or did I not put myself in that circumstance to kind of tempt myself? Now, I know that's not a real popular view because I think it makes, us, it makes us feel better about ourselves when we say, I can be bombarded with 500 temptations in a day, but as long as I don't yield to them, I don't have a sin problem. But even if it's not a sin problem, 
That temptation, if you put yourself in that temptation, could cause your assurance to be wounded, and it could cause you to begin wondering, you know, if I'm really a child of God, why am I facing all of these temptations? Now, temptation to sin doesn't come from God, right? The temptation to sin is not him putting the carrot out in front of you to see if you'll take the bait. But oftentimes our temptation, it maybe is sudden to us, and it might be intense, but is it our fault? Now, not always is that the case. Now, this is not a biblical per se example, but in the the, the allegorical story of the Pilgrim's Progress, which I hope you've all read this. If you have not, you need to get a copy of it, and you need to read it through. Read the full version of it. Uh, read it with your children. Um, they, they make versions of it, and you can even get in through Chapel Library. That's, uh, there are, it's abridged versions of it. But in, the, in part of the story in Pilgrim's Progress, there's an illustration of this truth about a sudden temptation coming upon the character Christian. Christian, of course, is the main character uh, in the story. And his, it's his journey from fleeing his city, which is going to face the destruction of God because of sin. And if you know the story, uh, Christian sets out and he leaves and his family stays behind. His wife and kids stay behind. They, they don't believe that judgment is coming. They don't believe it's going to happen. So the whole story of Pilgrim's Progress is Christian on this journey from his home to the celestial city. And every chapter is a certain part of the journey where he's met with someone or something. He meets new characters. He's in a, he's in a different place. And in the particular section I'm referring to this morning is the section where he is walking and passing through the valley of the shadow of death. As Christian is walking through this valley... Uh, and it, 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 is, it is a remarkable picture of spiritual warfare that's going on in Christian's life. They, the, John Bunyan, when he wrote Pilgrim's Progress, he was describing in many ways his own spiritual journey. That's what makes it remarkable. Uh, he wrote that in prison. I've made mention of that. He wrote that in prison for preaching Christ. And he, he used it on scraps of paper. And he, he wrote it not with a pen like we would do, but he wrote it with coals and the ashes that were left over the small fire he had. He penned this entire, he pens this entire book. But as he's walking through the valley of the shadow of the death, he describes demons secretly whispering blasphemous words into his ear. Now, this is not something he necessarily put himself in that place. This is spiritual warfare that goes on. Now, folks, if, if you don't think that demons are real and you don't think that there are not really demonic spirits which are trying to convince you and speaking blasphemous words to you, you have got your head in the spiritual sand. Demonic spiritual warfare is as real as you and I being seated here today. And Christian describes these spirits whispering in his ear blasphemous thoughts about his God. The intent of the demons were to turn him away and to turn him off of the road, the journey to the celestial city. The book goes on to describe his anxiousness. It goes on to describe him being discouraged. And guess what his conclusion is? His conclusion is these thoughts are coming from my own personal soul. He begins to take all of it and say, you know what, the reason I'm having these thoughts is it's because of me. When on, in fact, what was really happening is the demonic spirits were speaking to him, trying to convince him. 
that it was coming from him. He, the demons wanted him to distrust his assurance in God. We say, that's just an allegory. That doesn't really happen now. I beg to differ. Study your Bible and see, even in the New Testament, if there's not instances where even the Bible talks about Satan seeks to devour who he may devour. Spiritual warfare is extremely real and it, it is extremely prevalent in our day and age today, just like it was with a Christian when he wrote this, when Bunyan wrote that book. He thinks that those wicked thoughts are coming from his own soul and that part of the book, Christian is truly shaken to the core. He really truly believes that these thoughts are coming from himself. Now that's a non-direct Bible example, but the Psalms, of course, make it very clear that believers really do experience sudden temptation that greatly unsettles our confidence. Now there were times, Psalm 51 being an example, where David, the temptation was before his eyes. David, when he went up on that roof, knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly what he was going to see when he looked across the way. He lingered and he stayed. He allowed the temptation to turn into sin. But there were also times in David's life where there was a sudden temptation that overcame him that was not a result of David necessarily putting himself in a bad situation. Uh, in Psalm 31, we can't read the whole psalm, but if you'll drop down to verse 22, one of the many times that David was dealing with one of his many enemies, um, uh, he, David is expressing this confidence that he can have uh, in God's provision. But notice his words. He said, for I said in my haste. In other words, I said without really thinking this through, if you will. I am cut off from before thine eyes. Nevertheless, thou heardest the voice of my supplications when I cried unto thee. Uh, David is writing even in a sense there uh, that he is very unsettled. He said, I said in my haste that you've cut me off. In Psalm 77, verses 7 and 8, will the Lord cast off forever? This is a Psalm of Asaph, and will he be favorable no more? Is his mercy clean gone forever? Doth his promise fail forevermore? Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath he in his anger shut up his tender mercies? Asaph and David show us two examples of people who are absolutely shaken to the core by the circumstances that are going on in their life. The enemies pursuing David led him to very much begin to be a little bit unsettled in his assurance. So that tells us that David and Asaph would be people in the Bible who at some point in time needed to have their assurance revived, which is exactly why the confession writers said it the way they said it, is that there would be a time or could be a time when we would become suddenly unsettled. And then the fourth one we'll notice here is that the final cause, the final cause mentioned here, is God withdrawing the light of his countenance and suffering even such as fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light. Now, immediately we begin to say, does God have a right to withdraw the light of his countenance to even believers? Of course God has the right to do that. 
Of course God has the right to seemingly allow us to walk in a dark place. Uh, Psalm 30, verse 7 says, Lord, by thy favor, thou hast made my mountain to stand strong. Now notice the words. Thou didst hide thy face, and I was troubled. David, in Psalm 30, is writing about a time when God actually hid his face from David. Don't discount the realities that there are times when it is necessary for God to hide his face from us. I know we have this idea that once we're in, in the faith, once we're, we're saved, we don't have to worry about these things. But you know, even part of the chastening process, even part of the refining, sanctifying process, sometimes God sees needful to hide his face from us. Now, what David was not saying is that God has left me. I'm no longer a believer. Because if you look at the first part of that verse, he said, by your favor, thou hast made my mountain to stand strong. But... But thou didst hide thy face. David understood what this was to have God's face hidden from him. When God hides his face, what is he doing? When God hides his face, it is a sign of God's displeasure. There are times even in an entire church where God could hide his face from an entire church. He could become so displeased by what's going on there amongst his people that he could hide his face from them. The psalmist David in Psalm 30 verse 7, it's basically saying at times, Lord, you have withdrew in some measure towards your children your face. Sometimes God does that to, to demonstrate displeasure. Other times God hides his face to test us. You realize that your faith is being tested. We have a faith that is being purified, and it's purified by the testing seasons of life. Oftentimes, we immediately assume something terrible, something often awful must be going on in our life, when what really is happening is God is testing our faith, and He is purifying us. Yes, sometimes he hides his face out of displeasure, but there are also times he hides his face to test us. Like we've said many, many times, when everything is going well and perfect and fine in your life, we seemingly have no problems being faithful. We have no problems following God. But what about the times God puts you through a testing period? Folks, sometimes we don't sit still and meditate long enough to realize that God is actually doing that and allowing that for the intentional purposes of trying us by fire. That's why it's, it's wrong to say to anybody in a situation, God has no part of this. That's bad counsel, by the way. Because God has a part in everything. If we believe in the sovereignty and the providential hand of God, there is no circumstance that happens in life that we can buy what we think is going to comfort someone by saying, look, I know you're going through a rough testing period and God is no part of this. Biblically speaking, you cannot make that assertion. Because God has a part of the entire of what's going on in our life. Is he the author of sin? No. 
But remember that there are times, and even David, who was called a man after God's own heart, God withdrew his face from him in times of displeasure and also in times of testing. It is through the times of testing that sometimes God teaches his greatest lessons about his grace and about his greatness. Folks, personal experience, you will learn more about God's grace through a time of testing than you will in a time of triumph. You can mark it down. The times of triumph are wonderful. It's the times when everything you look at, everything you see, you see the hand of God all over it. You see God's blessing pouring down and you see it so clearly and you respond in kind. But it's in the testing periods where often God's grace is greatest more greatly demonstrated. And that last part of the confession, these things all happen, right? Yet are they never destitute of the seed of God and the life of faith? It wasn't just David. It wasn't just Asaph. Think about the experiences of Moses. Think about Elijah. Think about Jeremiah. Think about Job. Moses and Elijah begged God begged God to take their life. Moses wanted to die. Elijah wanted to die. Jeremiah lamented, I wish I had never been born. Now, does anybody here today think that Moses, Elijah, and Jeremiah were not one of God's children? Yet they were brought to a place where they said, I'd rather die. Jeremiah says, why was I even born? You know, Jeremiah had the most unfruitful ministry of all time by man's standards. He preached and preached and preached and preached and preached and nobody responded. Nobody turned to God. That's why he's called the weeping prophet. He said, all I do is get the the bad of society. Nobody wants to hear the message. I wish I would have never been born. Job directly asked God in his questioning of God, why was light even given to me who is in misery? Why would you show me the light in a person whose soul is bitter, who longs for death, but yet death doesn't come? That's exactly what Job was saying. If If you want to see this, look at Job 3 very quickly. Job is a remarkable book. And if, if, if it's not a book that you've read through or you've studied, I would highly encourage you to do that. Um, it, it is it, the, the number of lessons and the, the, the clarity of the doctrines of God that we see. Job 3, verse 20. Here's his exact words. Wherefore is light given to him that is in misery and life unto the bitter in soul? which longs for death, but it cometh not, and dig for it more than for hid treasures, which rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they can find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hid and whom God hath hedged in? You want, a, you want another interesting study? Study that phrase. Whom God has hedged in. For my sighing cometh before I eat, and my roarings are poured out like the waters. For the thing which I greatly feared is come upon me, and that which I was afraid of is come unto me. 
I was not in safety, neither had I rest, neither was I quiet, yet trouble came. Was Job a child of God or not? He was. We're told from the very beginning, the only reason the things that happened to Job happened to Job is because Satan came and asked permission from God to do those things. And God gave him one stipulation. You do whatever you need to do, do whatever you want to do, but you will not touch his life. Job understood what it was to have an assurance that needed revived. This revival of assurance is even seen by who we would say are our quote-unquote heroes of the faith. Yet somehow do we buy the lie that we think this will never happen to us. Now generally speaking, notice again what it says. They're never destined to the seed of God in life of faith, that the love of Christ and the brethren, that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty, out of which by the operation of the Spirit, that's key, this assurance may in due time be revived. It is the Spirit, the operation of the Spirit that revives our assurance. You know, I said at the outset that revival is a word that has got a lot of different meanings in a lot of different ways, depending on what kind of a church you come from. There are people that show up for a revival week at their church. Now, I understand what their intent is, but you and I can't program a revival in the spiritual sense and we cannot program a revival in our assurance but we can do the things that don't lead us there don't neglect these things don't put yourself in a place where your revival needs to your assurance needs to be revived folks many times the outcomes and the things that are going on in our life are because we have put ourselves in the position and we're wounding our own conscience and we're wounding our own assurance because we're not following what God says to keep these things and to, and to not neglect them. Now again, is there sudden temptation that will come upon us? Yes. Are there times when God, through His testing and through His displeasure, is going to withdraw His face? Yes. But notice the confession writers knew that in spite of all of this, this assurance may in due time be revived, and by the which, in the meantime, they are preserved from utter despair. Which means we should never come to the place where we become entirely, completely, and fully hopeless. Because we know we're in God. We know that our citizenship, as Paul wrote in the Philippians 3.20 and verse 21, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state. Paul writes about in there. He writes about that humble state. So we're waiting. We're waiting for all that God is going to do with us. These good things that are coming. It's a wonderful privilege to understand Romans 8.28 that, that all things that are happening, paraphrased, are for the good for those that love God and are called according to His purpose. All these things God is working out for His good. It is His privilege, the believer, for us to be able to rejoice in the hope and the glory of God so that we are never fully despair or we're fully never destitute. So by way of review, quickly, believers, first of all, can have their assurance of salvation shaken, for example, by negligence, by sin, 
by sudden temptation or by God hiding his face from believers for a season. But secondly, believers that do have their assurance shaken, and I want you to take heart of this today, will never fully lose their faith. Folks, just because your assurance is shaken today doesn't mean you lost your faith. And just because you are in a shaken state right now. I love what the confession writer, I love the way they wrote. Because it says, in the meantime. You know, really, we're in that meantime right now between, between when Christ first came and when he's coming again. We're in the meantime. We're in the time when all these things are faith. And yet our faith is one day going to become sight. We're preserved from utter despair. Our, sh- our assurance might be shaken, but we never lose our faith. We also, as the confession writer said, and 1 John 3, 9 says, we also never lose the seed of God. The seed of God that is in us will always be in us. We also don't lose the Spirit. When your assurance is shaken, the Spirit has not left you. You don't have to pray that the Spirit would come back and dwell with you again. The Spirit never left you. Just like the seed of God never left you. Your faith never left you. We therefore can say we are never brought to utter despair. And assurance is usually revived in due season. When does this revival or revival of assurance take place? Well, we don't always know. Again, those of you who've been around long enough know my favorite psalm in all the Bible is Psalm 42. And it's my favorite psalm in the Bible because it's very real to me. Psalm 42 is part of my life story. Psalm 42 is the place, the lowest point in my life, the greatest testing time in my life, was the greatest time God ever used in my life. And it was Psalm 42 that I still to this day, every time I start to feel in despair, every time I start to feel like things aren't right between myself and God, I go to Psalm 42. Because the writer in Psalm Psalm 42 speaks in verse 5, he says, Why art thou cast down, O my soul, and why art thou disquieted in me? Hope thou in God. For I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. O oh my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore will I remember thee from the land of Jordan and of the Hermonites and from the hill Mizar. Deep calleth unto deep at the noise of thy water spouts. All thy waves and thy billows are gone over me. This psalmist is, picture him at the bottom of the sea. That's where he says he is. And look at the next word. Yet. Yet the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime and in the night his song shall be with me and my prayer unto the God of my life. I will say unto God my rock, why hast thou forgotten me? Why go I mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with the sword in my bones, mine enemies reproach me while they say daily unto me, Where is thy God? Why art thou cast down, O my soul, and why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him who is the health of my countenance and my God. Sometimes I've mentioned 
chapter divisions are unfortunate because Psalm 43 is a continuation of Psalm 42. The thoughts are exactly the same. And David and the psalmist, who many believe it was David, David makes mention of that and he says, Why would I doubt God for a moment? Because even if the waves are over you, you still have hope in God. David had to keep reminding himself over and over and over and over again, even though I feel as if the waves have gone over my head, God, you are still good. God, you are still who you said you are. And I can still have confidence in you. Assurance may in our lives need to be revived. So I hope this will help us this morning as we think about these great truths. Uh, Now next week, uh, what we typically do before we start another chapter of the confession is we usually take a week or two and we're going to look at a psalm. So next week we are going to begin looking. And if you want to look ahead, I'm intending uh, to do an exposition of Psalm 133. Uh, So if you want to look ahead, read that. You're going to find out as soon as you turn to it. Wow, that's a short psalm. Uh, But it is an extremely important psalm dealing with unity. And so I hope you will prepare for that, study that on your own. That'll give you something to work towards for next week, and we'll look forward to that. All right? Anybody have any 